1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? This short cigar belongs to the man with no name. This long gun belongs to the man with no name. This poncho belongs to the man with no name. Don't you want to see me? What's wrong, Ramon? You losing your touch? Shoot to kill, you better hit the heart. Aim for the heart or you'll never stop me. man with no name, danger fits him like a tight black glove. He is, perhaps, the most dangerous man who ever lived. Get three coffins ready. <laughs> I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. He gets the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. This man with no name is played by Clint Eastwood. He's going to trigger a whole new style in adventure. A fistful of dollars is the first motion picture of its kind. It won't be the last. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am here with Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello, everybody. Pleasure to be here. Now, anybody who listens to us often enough has heard Andy and I wax poetic about the film career of Clint Eastwood. And there's probably, I would say, a minimum of half a dozen to a dozen movies that we'd like to cover uh, by Clint Eastwood. And we've already done Dirty Harry. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to go into the spaghetti western field and hit A Fistful of Dollars. The first of, actually, I was going to say the first of the Spaghetti Westerns, but it really is the first starring role by Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah, it's the first one. He was a TV star, wasn't he? Yeah, he was on Rawhide, and uh, there's another show that I know he appeared on called Death Valley Days. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was, you know, that that was an anthology show, you know, kind of a Western version of The Twilight Zone, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if he was one of these people who was on a lot of episodes or if he was just once, but I do, know, I do have a, a memory of him having been on that. And then he had been, you know, basically a cameo appearance, uh, and not really a cameo appearance, just kind of a background player. Uh, in a lot of movies like Return of the Creature and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, his, his, B-movies. Yeah, this was his first starring role. And as I understand it, it was kind of controversial because it was, you know, an Italian Western produced in Spain. Uh, and it was looked at as almost a step backwards for his career. Instead of being, you know, okay, now he's starring in a movie, so he's, you know, taking a step forward. Mm. Well, it was outside of the Hollywood system that at that point was still very insular. And also the fact that he was coming from TV, like you and I are old enough to remember when it was, there was TV stars and there was film stars. And every now and again, you'd get somebody like James Garner, who had a career in both. But for the most part, it was never the twain shall meet. You know, Lee Majors tried to make it as a film star, didn't succeed. Same with Tom Selleck. A couple of others were considered TV stars. And now it's interchangeable. It's now considered that if you can get a prestige Netflix television show, that is sometimes considered more prestigious than uh, a good film. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's the nature of the series uh, that now they make these series that they're what, anywhere from, I mean, if you're talking about Sherlock, uh, which is not Netflix, it's a BBC show, but which they'll do three episodes in a season. Mm. Uh, and then you have Netflix shows that are six or 10 or 12 episodes in a season. So it's not the same grind as it used to be back in the 50s and 60s, mm. uh, where you know if you made a TV series, it was expected that you would do 26 episodes because you'd have 26 weeks of new shows, 26 weeks of reruns, and then start a new season. Now, one of the things that struck me about watching A Fistful of Dollars this morning was how easily you could make this into a 10-episode Netflix show with his little side missions and the little things that he's up to on the sly as the plot goes on, you could very easily make this into a 10-hour epic. You know, I, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. But yeah, because the, the plot is very... It, it's very filled with little things that he's doing to advance his agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And each one of those little things could be a side episode. Yeah. That's what I was thinking while I was watching it. I was watching it going, this, they could easily turn this into a 10-episode Netflix show, keep the spine of the story intact, 
but go into greater depth as to how he manipulates the two sides to working against each other and all of that stuff. Um, it, it, it was a powerful, powerful film. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. As did I. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm debating in my mind whether or not I should read the plot. You, you can give us a, a brief summary of it because it, it's quite a convoluted plot, really. Well, it's it's the one I have here is not that brief. It's about five paragraphs long. I'm, I'm going to give it just for the heck of it. Uh, a stranger arrives at the little town of San Miguel. Silvant- Silvanito, the town's innkeeper, tells the stranger about a feud between two families vying to gain control of the town, the Rojo brothers, Benito Esteban and Ramon, and that of the town sheriff, John Baxter. The stranger decides to play each family against each other in order to make money and proves his speed and accuracy with his gun to both sides by shooting with ease the four men who insulted him as he entered town. The stranger seizes the opportunity when he sees the Rojos massacre a detachment of Mexican soldiers who are escorting a chest of gold that they plan to exchange for a shipment of new rifles. He takes two of the dead bodies to a nearby cemetery and sells information to both sides saying that two Mexican soldiers survive the attack. Both sides race to the cemetery, the Baxters to get the survivors to testify against the Rojos, and the Rojos to silence them. The factions engage in a gunfight, with Ramon managing to kill the survivors, and Esteban capturing John Baxter's son, Antonio. While the Rojos and Baxters are fighting, the stranger searches the Rojo Hacienda for the gold. While he is searching, he accidentally knocks out a woman, Marisol. He takes her to the Baxters, who in turn arrange to return her to the Rojos in exchange for Antonio. During the exchange, Marisol's son, Jesus, runs towards her, followed by her husband, Julio. While the family embraces, Ramon orders one of his friends, Rubio, to kill her husband, as he has already told him to leave town. Silvanito attempts to protect the family with a shotgun, with the stranger backing him up. Neither Ramon nor any of his men attempt to challenge the stranger, knowing he is too fast on the draw. The stranger tells Marisol to go to Ramon and for Julio to take Jesus home. He learns from Silvanito that Ramon had framed Julio for cheating during a card game and taken Marisol prisoner, forcing her to live with him. That night, while the Rojos are celebrating, the stranger rides out and frees Marisol, shooting the guards and wrecking the house in in which she is being held, making it appear as though it were attacked by the Baxters. He gives Marisol some money and tells her and her family to leave town. When the Rojos discover that the stranger freed Marisol, they capture and torture him, but he escapes. Believing him to be protected by the Baxters, the Rojos set fire to the Baxter home and massacre the entire family as they run out of the burning building. Ramon kills John Baxter and Antonio after pretending to spare them. Consuelo, John Baxter's wife, appears and curses the Rojos for killing her unarmed husband and son. She is then shot and killed by Esteban. With help from Perepero, the local coffin maker, the stranger escapes town by hiding in a coffin. He hides and convalesces in a nearby mine. When Perepero tells him that Silvanito has been captured, the stranger returns to town to face the Rojos. With a steel chest plate hidden beneath his poncho, taunts Ramon to aim for the heart as Ramon's shots bounce off. Panicking, Ramon uses up all his bullets in his Winchester. The stranger shoots the rifle from Ramon's hand and kills the other Rojos standing nearby, including Don Miguel and Rubio. 
He then uses the last bullet in his gun to free Silvanito, tied hanging from a post. After challenging Ramon to reload his rifle faster than he could reload his pistol, the stranger shoots and kills Ramon. Esteban Rojo aims for the stranger's back from a nearby building, but is shot dead by Silvanito. The stranger beats well and rides away from the town. So it is the classic, the stranger comes to town story. Uh, it's clearly, although there was a legal controversy over it, it's clearly taken from the uh, Akira Kurosawa classic, which I have never seen, uh, Yojimbo. I don't know. Have you ever seen that, Andy? I have never seen your Jimbo, no, but I've not seen Seven Samurai either. That I've seen. Even though I love The Magnificent Seven. Um, the only thing I would would say about that synopsis is he's clearly called Joe in this film. He's called Joe, but that's by the coffin maker who's clearly a little bit uh, off. And uh, I don't well, think I that's was, I don't think that's ever his name. I think that's I was just what he's about called. That. Is this like those old Stanley comics where people would just be called Charlie, and it wasn't the name? You just called them Charlie for reasons that only Stan knew. Yeah, that's. I think that's what it is because he never identifies himself as Joe. the The guy just takes to calling him that, and I'm thinking he calls all Americans Joe. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense because then it fits better into the man with no name trilogy and and i uh, do like at the very end after he kills everybody and there's all the bodies laying there he's say joe oh joe joe <laughs> <laughs> i just love that uh, yeah it's it's overall a really entertaining movie now uh, what i love about it is that clint eastwood does so much in this film with so very little in terms of dialogue but he carries the film and it, I think this is one of those true examples of how he's a much better actor than he frequently gets credit for. Just watch him in all of the scenes. He's always doing something. He's never not doing anything, even if it's just a, a you know a sideways glance or a exactly. laconic smile or or just a reaction to what other people are doing. He's compelling throughout the entire film and this wasn't my introduction to him were these your first introduction to clint eastwood this was my first introduction to the spaghetti western dirty harry was my first introduction to clint eastwood i was gonna say i i grew up with him being the cop i grew up with dirty harry and the sequels and the gauntlet which is also a great movie and all of them and it was i think the first western i saw of his was uh, outlaw josie wales which to this day is still my favorite of his films now, this, this was, you know, back in the days before VHS, which most of people, you probably yourself and most of the people listening don't really remember all that much. But, yeah, oh, but yeah. I, one of the things about watching this, I watched this on Netflix, and it's in glorious cinemascope. I mean, I can only assume this was um, 36 millimeter film, because I remember this on TV in pan and scan and how shitty some of the shots looked in right. pan and scan versus how this looked on netflix i presume this has been restored because well, it was one of my notes from the rewatch is how beautiful the cinematography yeah, it was it looks it? great doesn't it it's shot beautifully yes and it's funny because the editing i don't think is great in it uh and usually that'll take away from the cinematography as you're watching it uh you know because of the, the some of the choppy cuts that you get but it is, it just, you know, every time you get a, a Vista shot, it's just gorgeous. Mm. There are an extreme number of extreme close-ups in this. Yeah. Uh, you know, Leone was not a conventional director, no question about it. He had a different style about it. He he was very much into the slow burn. 
uh, and he was very much into the extreme close-up. And by extreme close-up, I don't just mean you know a head and shoulder shot. I mean where the 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 shot is too close to even catch the entire face on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know there was definitely some interesting things about it. I had, but I had first seen this on I, I I don't remember if it was Channel Five, Channel Nine, Channel Eleven, one of the shows that showed syndicated things, uh, and it would be in you know in a, in a ninety minute chopped up format, uh, you know with commercials, and this this is a this is an intricate you know if you didn't tell from the synopsis this is an intricate complex plot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, on the face of it, it is just he rolls into town and decides to play two sides against each other who are running the town badly. But there's a lot more going on here because of the family with the little kid. And the only backstory you get, and I I actually think you didn't need this line, when he says, um, I knew a family like this once and there was no one to help, you'd already got that earlier on from his reaction to the child being shot at by, the, was it the Baxters who were doing that, or the Rojo? I think it was the Rojos, wasn't it? And then uh, his reaction later on, when he's not allowed to see his mum. You got well, that from Clint Eastwood's acting. You didn't need that line of dialogue. Yeah, I agree. You didn't need it, because you could see. And that, and we, that kind of opens the movie with that. Uh, you know, he comes into town, he's over by a well, just getting some water, and you see this little boy running out, and the initial thought is he's going to go over and approach the man with no name. And you're thinking it's going to be one of these almost annoying things where the little boy becomes your exposition point of view thing where, you know, he's going to start asking him questions or whatever. And and uh, it isn't at all. Uh, you know, he, he sneaks into the house where his mother's being held and then, uh, you know, gets thrown out and, and, you know, beaten a little bit. And he runs to his father who also gets beaten. And you can see the man with no name reacting to this. And I agree with what you said earlier, just even when he's not moving around, he, he is really acting with his expressions and his face. Uh, and even more so just with his eyes where, you know, he's kind of expressionless, but you could see what's working behind the scenes uh, that his mind is racing on how to, how to play with this and how to, how to, you know, not only how to help these people, cause he's clearly appalled by it, but how to exploit the situation that he's confronted with here. And that's the whole movie is him exploiting it. Mm. And his exploitation of both sides is masterfully done. The bits where he's just sneaking around town at night and setting things up. I mean, the only issue I had with all of this was he sets the family free, but doesn't give them a horse. And at the very least, he could have given them a horse to get away from, from San Miguel. Yeah, well, that's true. I guess he figured they had to... They had to take it on themselves to do some of it. Mm. But, and he you know, gives the, all of his money to them. You you wonder, you know, because Marisol, I, I don't really know this actress. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. Her name is uh, Marion Koch. I, I'm not familiar with her other than in this, but she's clearly beautiful. Yeah, uh, she's got and, a lot of black eyeliner on for the old West. Yeah, well, and that's the point. Well, I was the, Roman, gonna... the Romans wore eyeliner, so you know. I, I remember, you know, back in the days when I, I used to sit and watch the the three uh, the, the Dollars trilogy, uh, and my my sister used to comment of just just like how, how, she was kind of like grossed out by the uh, by the just the, the general atmosphere because she's like everybody's just covered with sweat and i was like well that's realistic you know back in yeah. mexico in in the 1800s there was no air conditioning and it's freaking hot of course they're all sweaty but she managed to stay pristine 
Yeah, throughout uh, the entire des- film, she looks just stunning. Despite the fact that you figure they're physically and sexually abusing her. Yeah. Quite but, clearly, I think that's clearly implied. Yeah, they never they never come out and say it, but you know, I think uh, you know what are they holding her for? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, she she's you know, and and she's another one. When you see her, all of a sudden they go right to the to the real close up of her. Her face is taken up pretty much the entire screen when you see her, mm. and uh, you know, Leone knew to uh, to emphasize her beauty because that really is the whole purpose of her in here. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we we you know I, when I first saw this, because of the format I saw it in, it felt more to me. And plus, I was fairly young. Uh, it felt more to me like a a series of different things that were going on. But it was hard to put it together as as a uh, a, a plot that made sense. And again, with the commercials and with things being cut out. Uh, then it came out on VHS tape, so I had to get a copy of that. And the weird thing about that one was it was a complete copy of the movie, but it was still pan and scan because it was in the days when they really didn't letterbox too much. Mm-hmm. But the editing on it got totally screwed up. And the scene after he gets beaten, when he escapes, when he sets up the giant barrel to, to roll and kill the guys. Oh, that's brilliant. But it was all edited out of order. Uh you, they would, you know, they showed him crawling. Then you see the bodies on the ground. Then you see the guys coming into the room. Then you hear the barrel rolling. Then you see the bodies again. Then you hear screaming. It was like totally out of sequence, and I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Right. And it wasn't. It wasn't until uh, till it got to to DVD that I finally got to see a version of it where it was edited correctly where it made sense i see i don't i don't recall exactly why where i saw these three i just probably caught them on television at some point but i always remember that being the most effective kill in the film because it's it's uh joe or the man with no name or the stranger or whatever you want to call it really with his back against the wall at that point he's been beaten and tortured and it looks like they're just going to keep doing that to him until they get the information. So the guy coming through the door and then him waiting to the precise moment that he turns around and locks the door so he can't get out of it and then pushes the barrel down at him. And whilst I can see for the time that it was made, it was probably considered quite violent. It's relatively blood-free nowadays. But that bit where the barrel just smashes into him and shatters into a thousand pieces, I did physically go, oh! Yeah. And, and the, I mean, the... the torture scene of the man with no name is pretty brutal also mm. and what i liked about that is you see he's obviously taken you know a horrific beating but there's the one guy who's kind of he's kind of weaselly and he's in the background and he burns his cigarette on on clint eastwood's hand mm. and and then all of a sudden clint eastwood stands up and he just punches the guy <laughs> yeah, like he's he, he, out the way He's taken a terrible beating, but he's still enough to take out the Weasley guy. Yeah, it's like he's still not going to take that lying down because then that guy then stands on his hand, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. With his spurs on. I mean, the other the other scene that stuck out. I mean, there's a couple of classics. Obviously, um, my mule, he don't like you laughing. Is a classic. Yeah, that's but, always the most the most memorable to me. But the bit where it's incredibly funny. Best get three coffins ready. My mistake. 
four coffins. <laughs> he's yeah. absolute genius. And his delivery of those lines, his laconic laid-back delivery of it is just staggering. But the scene that stuck out this time was the massacre of the Baxters where Clint's just watching them all because he's in no fit state to help. He's in that coffin. And the, the, the guy who builds the coffins is smuggling them out of town and just a cold-blooded execution of the first of Sheriff Baxter and then the son. And then after the, the mother comes out and says, damn you all to hell, and then they just kill her as well. You, it is one of those moments in the film where you're like, okay, you three are now going down. And it's 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 also kind of stark in as you said, the cold-blooded nature of it. Because as as this is happening, and they, you know, they only have one way of leaving this house that's on fire, so that their choice is come out or burn to death. Mm. Or I guess you could die of smoke inhalation. But whatever the case may be, it's, it's a horrible death no matter what you no matter how you slice it. So they have no choice but to come out, and they're yelling, I surrender, I don't have any weapons, I give up, I'll, you know, whatever you want. And <laughs> as they're doing that, he's still just taking them out one by one. <laughs> with you know no hesitation whatsoever he just kills yeah. them all in- including the mother yeah which you know in in that day and age you know that was that that was a more a, a considered an even, an even more violent act because you know the women wouldn't be violent to him but whatever the case may be it's just you know it's just building up more in the, in this this movie where there's really no you know nobody who's the absolute good guy no, there uh, there are no good guys in this film. They they're just making out the you know the bad the the very bad guy to be you know totally bad. Nothing yeah. you know nothing no redeemable quality whatsoever. Even even Clint's character is not a good guy. He's just less bad than the other guys and he's clearly on a moral side that we can agree with. Yeah, and he's he's said uh, that he wanted to play a more ambiguous character, that he didn't want to be just, you know, he he was used to on TV being the total white hat, hmm. you know, who would who would you know pet the dog and you know you know visit with the old women and you know whatever, but he wanted to play somebody who was a little bit more morally ambiguous, and and clearly did. Uh, yeah, you know, he he is out for his own good. Now, you know, in in the course of it, he sees this family and and you know has has a moral desire to help them which makes him clearly the good guy in the movie mm. but you never believe that he's just you know a, a force for good no and and it's I, it's I'm, go ahead andy no i was just going to say he's clearly not above taking jobs that would be considered dubious to make himself some money but it's he sees in my interpretation of it he sees himself in that child and he sees what happened to his family in that family but there was no one there to help him that's my understanding of what is not said which in something like this is more important than what is said and i think that the story for this really stands up as being quite a little bit more complex and convoluted than you think it's going to be Arguably, The Magnificent Seven has a pretty linear story. This this plays around an awful lot with Shades of Grey and who exactly the bad guys and the good guys, and if, even those words can even be used to describe these people in this situation. Yeah, I mean, you have the Baxters and you have the uh, Rojos, and 
right off the bat, you see that they're they're both bad. Yeah. You know, the the, the people who confront him when he comes into town are with the Baxters. Uh, and when he takes them out, which again is probably one of the, I, I was going to say it's probably the greatest scene. It's one of the greatest movies, one of the greatest movie scenes I've ever seen, to be honest with you. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, you, you really need to. And uh, at the end of the episode, I'm sure I'm going to put a clip of that, you know, mm. a little audio clip of it. But you need you need to see that. Um, but he takes them out, and immediately Sheriff John Baxter runs out. I see what you did. I, you know, you, you killed them in cold blood. You're, you're, you're going to hang for this. So already we're setting up the Baxters as bad guys. And then over the course of the movie, we set up the Rojos as even worse guys. And the you know the battle between them, the Rojos take out the Baxters, and then the man with no name has to take out the Rojos. And when he leaves, they're pretty much all gone. Yeah, Which, he's pretty much wiped them all out by the end of the film. So at the end of the movie, other than uh, Silvadito and uh, I forget the the, the name of the. Uh, Undertaker, except for the two of them, I'm not sure there's anybody left in the town. <laughs> no, I think there must be some people left in who go to the casino, the cantina, as it is. Sorry, not the casino. There must be a couple of them. Uh, there must be some people who weren't on the Rojo's payroll. We don't see them though. <laughs> now I I understand, and I'm trying to find here. Uh... Here, just uh, I'm going to read from the Wikipedia page because I think this is interesting. When the film was released on the televised network ABC on the 23rd of February 1975, a four and a half minute prologue was added to the film to contextualize the character and justify the violence. Written and directed by Monty Hellman, it featured an unidentified official, Harry Dean Stanton, offering the man with no name a chance at a pardon in exchange for cleaning up the mess in San Miguel. Close-ups of Eastwood's face from archival footage are inserted into the scene alongside Stanton's performance. This prologue opened the television presentation for a few years before disappearing. It reappeared on the special edition DVD and more recently, and the more recent Blu-ray, along with an interview with Monty Hellman about its making. So I, I've never actually seen that. No, I, I and, doubt that we ever got that over here. And it, it may actually be on the copy that I have, and I just never noticed it. So I need to I need to pull that out and watch it. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that if it's not available on the disc I have, that it would be on YouTube somewhere. Mm. So I'm going to need to see that. But it, it's it, it's kind of going to what you're talking about a little bit, where uh, you feel like the story is complete as is, and I tend to agree with you, but they didn't trust the American audience enough I think it's more, they didn't trust the TV audience enough. Yeah. More than anything. I think the cinema audience was probably considered more literate at the time. TV was considered the, the bastard offspring, wasn't it, in many ways. And it, was, it, it, it goes to what Eastwood has said about playing this character as being a bit more ambiguous. He was playing Rowdy Yates on Rawhide, and everyone on television at that time was either good or bad. There was no middle ground, really. It was very rare that you had something like Have Gun, Will Travel, where Paladin was slightly ambiguous at the very least, but everyone else was straightforward and stalwart and true. So I think they probably felt the need to to put some context on that for a television audience, which is, again, I think being rather insulting to the television audience, but it per- plays into this idea of TV just being moving wallpaper. 
I I didn't really need to know any more about Eastwood's character than was given in this film. It's I all found backstory. part of the appeal of I find part yeah. of the appeal of Eastwood's character is that you never get his backstory. No, and that's you all have to speculate. In, yeah, it's all implied, and that is infinitely preferable to me than overwriting the exposition like a lot of of more modern movies do, where they feel that you can't leave anything to interpretation. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it depends on the movie. I don't think they all do that. And no, I no, think that, I think there's always been movies that have always overexposited, and there's some movies that leave it up to the imagination. And this, and then you know, there's a middle ground there too that of things that I have a problem with, and I've talked about before. I don't like when movies end on a question mark, or most of the time, I don't like. Let me. I, I don't want to speak in absolutes because it's not really the case. I don't like when when I feel that they cop out by ending on a question mark and then saying, well, it's up to you as the, as the viewer to decide what happened. And I always point to the finale of The Sopranos. That, that really disturbed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, after, after being with that show for as many years as I was and enjoying it as much as I did, then to end it and say, well, I don't know, maybe he died, maybe he's still alive, it's up to you as the viewer to decide. No. <laughs> no, end it, end it on, a, on, a, on a real ending. I think he's dead. I... I have ultimately come to that conclusion too that that the, the screen goes blank because he was just killed. Mm. But you know, I, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I just don't appreciate that. I, th- I think ultimately they decided that having Tony Soprano die at the end, which is what they wanted, uh, would be too uh, too uh, upsetting to too many of the viewers. So they dis- they changed their mind and said, well, we're going to end it on, you know, ambiguously that way. Mm. But, but anyway, just not, I don't want to make this too much on the Sopranos, but I, <laughs> I, I feel it's a, it's a little bit of a cop out when you do that. Now in this instance, his backstory is not integral to the plot of the story. It's only integral to what the character is. Uh, and I think it's okay to leave that to your imagination. And, you know, I think, you know, like you said, Eastwood's acting kind of gives you a little bit of a, you see that this is affecting him deeply and that he's got a connection to it. He never has to actually say it. Uh, so you don't have to do that. And then to have to add a whole scene explaining why they're, they're asking him to come into town to do this uh, just kind of changes the whole nature of his character as far as I'm concerned. Mm. He's, he's no longer, to me, he's no longer the opportunist with a heart of gold. He's he's now a uh, a mercenary. Yeah, and not, Whereas, not that he's above being a mercenary, but that's not this movie. No, it's not. And I, I, yeah, like you said, I don't think he's above being a mercenary. If the cause strikes him as morally not the word, I, I, I almost said reprehensible then, but that's not the word I'm looking for. If the cause strikes him as moral, I could see him being part of the Magnificent Seven quite easily. He would never yes. be the part of the, the side that is invading the small town. But at the same time, I don't think he's above robbing a bank if he needed to, to make well, a little I, bit I of think, money. I think his, the way I see his character's morality, and this is trying to probably taking it too far to, to try and uh, pen it in, but the way I see his character's morality is he's very, very willing to do bad things to bad people. Hmm. Things that that you you know you just wouldn't do to other people, but he's willing to because he's you know they're bad people. They deserve it anyway. Who cares? And he's yeah. not doing it to get justice. He's doing it because you know because he, he's getting something out of it. And who cares if these people are, are damaged in the process? Yeah. Uh, but like he he would not 
have done something to Marisol's family to be an opportunist. You know what I mean? He wouldn't have robbed from that family. And he certainly wouldn't abuse Marisol. We see that quite clearly in the film. So there's a moral code that a lot of these people don't have as well, that he would not force himself on a woman. And eventually, maybe we'll talk about High Plains Drifter and this scene in there uh, of that nature. And uh, maybe we could, just, you know, when that time comes, we'll talk about the moral code there. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I think his character is complex in that nature. And he's one of the first anti heroes I can think of. Uh, you know, I think there were, there were movies where Humphrey Bogart played people who were a little bit morally ambiguous. Uh, so, you know, we did see stuff like that before this. It's not the first time we saw that. Uh, or even even John Wayne to some extent, yeah. That on on occasion. Do you uh, think John Wayne did it as a reaction to Eastwood? Well, I, I definitely think uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. This does John Wayne did a uh, a cop movie where he drove a Trans Am. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, and I think that was a direct uh, re- reaction to the fact that Dirty Harry was doing well. Hmm. Uh, See, my not... favorite John Wayne movie is The Shootest. I love that movie. Oh, it's, it's a great movie, and it's his last mm. movie. And I think I don't think that was in response to anything that Clint Eastwood did. I think that was really just in response to the fact that he actually had cancer and was dying and wanted to do a story about wrapping up the life of a, an old gunslinger. So I, I don't, I don't think that great, was a That's direct, great, The Shootest. Oh, absolutely it is. I love mm. that movie. I'm, just, I'm only tying with it because... Um, one of my all-time favorite comic book series is Preacher, and there's an awful lot of this kind of thing in Preacher. This idea of of the man with his own moral code, who follows his own system, who does what he thinks is right, regardless of what the law is. That plays into Preacher an awful lot. That's what I've heard, and I've meant to read, or not even meant to. I've attempted a couple of times to get into Preacher, and I just haven't been able to, to get there. Uh, but you know, on your recommendation, I keep saying uh, at some point I got to sit down and just read this through. And then I started to watch the TV series, and I don't know if it was you or somebody else said if you haven't read it, probably don't watch it yet. If, after reading it, if I wanted to watch it, then it's fine. But not worth spoiling the comic to see the series is ultimately what I was told. No, the, the yeah, the comic is much better. I, I watched one episode of the show. <laughs> okay, there you go. About any of that, yeah. <laughs> But I think one of the things that's interesting, if you watch Eastwood's career over the entire span, he's always interested in playing with his image. So if you think about it, he's done that from the very beginning. So there will be people who went to this knowing him as Rowdy Yates and so a completely different cowboy character than what they were seeing weekly on television. And then throughout his entire career, he he's very much enjoyed taking what you think he is and then screwing around with it to mess with the audience's head. Mm-hmm. Gran Torino probably being the most recent example where you think he's going to go out all guns blazing and he doesn't. Or, or, uh, I thought, I thought the, one of the, one of the early versions, I mean, he did it in this one, obviously. So he did it right from the start of his movie career. But, uh, yeah. one, one movie that I thought that he, he definitely did that for, and he, he got a lot of cr- critical accolades for was, uh, Unforgiven. Yeah, I think you know he he showed he showed the gunfighter from a perspective you had never seen before, which yeah. is you know, which is saying something. That's that's not so easy to do, uh, and and he's 
the, one of the fun things, if, if you're a fan of Clint Eastwood, is if you watch his career and you see the things he's done, you could see how, the influences on his career of things and how he picks up as he goes along. And you see a lot of things in, in Clint Eastwood, the director, uh, of what he picked up as an actor. And you, mm. you see it also because he, he did start directing fairly early in his movie career. Uh, his, his first, the first for me was his first one. Uh, actually, the first one was, if unless I'm mistaken, the first one was a movie called Breezy that he wasn't in with William Holden. Oh, yeah, was that a jazz thing? It was it was a, a, a an older man and a younger woman romance story, uh, right? And then then was Play Misty for me was his first as the actor slash director, mm. and and you can see over the course of his career because he, he you know as he got older and Clint Eastwood is now in his late eighties. He, he focused much more on directing than acting, uh, but he still acts occasionally. But you can see in a lot of the movies the influences of Sergio Leone or Don Siegel or the different directors that he's worked with over his career. And what I actually found very interesting was, uh, you know, and don't don't hold this against me, but I was I went to see A Star Is Born when it came out this year, and uh, what's his name, uh, Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper, who was in American Sniper, directed. Yep. A Star is Born, and you could see the Clint Eastwood, or at least I could see the Clint Eastwood influence in Bradley Cooper's directing style. A lot of the shot angles, a lot of the cinematography, a lot of the editing uh, looked very, Mm. very similar to a Clint Eastwood-directed movie. So I I suspect that as he was starring in American Sniper, he was sitting there taking notes on what Eastwood was doing directing-wise. Yep. And I just, I find the whole process to be somewhat fascinating because Clint Eastwood was considered to be, you know, people looked at Dirty Harry and they just thought he was, you know, an action shoot 'em up star and that was it. And he's so much more than that. Uh, and for him now to be a director that other people are learning the craft from mm-hmm. is just, to me, it's just a, a, ter- a tremendous career uh, you know that I've seen kind of develop over the years. I, I got into the game a little bit late because I was young when Play Misty came out. Uh, I, you know, but I really started watching Clint Eastwood's career very closely in the '80s, uh, and have kind of followed it through for the last thirty some odd years uh, as his directing became more prolific and as his acting kind of pulled back a little bit. So it, it's just, you know, it, like I said, it's just fun to me to watch that and to see the influences on his career and now to see him influencing other people's careers. But back back to uh, <laughs> it's a long, long way to go and a long way from uh, A Fistful of Alice. No, uh, no, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of being able to see what he has ultimately done with his career. And I've talked with you about this before privately. I... I'm of the opinion he has never been bad in anything. He's been in some bad films or films that weren't perhaps as good as he may have hoped they would be or some that just didn't hit for whatever reason. But he has never delivered a bad performance, which goes back to what I said at the beginning, that I I really don't think he's received his due as an actor. And I think it'd be a shame if he's one of those actors who only gets that look back after he's no longer with us. Well, I have not seen The Mule, and I haven't even heard any uh, any critical reviews of it. 
But I would love to find out that that's a tour de force acting performance that he walks away with an Academy Award. Because mm-hmm. as I said, he's in his late 80s. We don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. And even if he's with us for many more years, we don't know if he's going to give us any more acting performances after this. Because yeah, he, he keeps yeah, he, promising he's going to retire at some point. He keeps promising he's going to ditch acting and just be a director. Uh, but so he's I, been I would love to that see for 25 years. But I would love to see that that is a tour de force performance and that he, he walks away with an Academy Award for it. That would be just the greatest thing. I mean, he's gotten the directing Academy Award. And the, the funny thing is, uh, and I don't know if you'd agree or not, but I think he is a better actor than he is a director, despite the fact that I think he's a good director. Uh, I think as a director, he's often taken some chances. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm wording this badly because it's not that I don't think he's a really good director. I do. But I think he's taken some chances as a director that have resulted in not good movies on occasion. Mm. Uh, I think his version of Jersey Boys was weak as a director. I've never seen his version of Jersey Boys. I did see Changeling, which he isn't in, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. My wife is a huge fan of Mystic River. She thinks right. that's a great crime noir. Again, he directed it, but wasn't in it. Uh, I even have a soft spot for uh, Bridges of Madison County, which I actually think is one of his most underrated acting performances, but he directed that as well. And I think he has a reputation of being somebody who gets a script and then he doesn't demand rewrites. And I think there are some cases where some of the, the, the stuff that he does could have done with a rewrite. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, Dirty Harry went back to being the original script that it was when he came on board. So sometimes that instinct has served him well. Right. And I, I think he's also always been somebody who's willing to take a chance. And I think this movie is, you know, the, the first example of it, that he, he had his reputation as Rowdy Yates, you know, the good guy, white hat wearing Western hero. And he was willing to take a chance at playing the anti-hero and not only that, but to do so in an Italian film, uh, which was not going to be as kindly Filmed looked upon. Spain. <laughs> yes. Uh, no other English people on cast are English speaking members of the cast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's something I, before we finish up, I do want to talk about that a little bit, but, uh, you know, he, he did that. And, but there's a lot of smaller movies that Clint Eastwood has made over the years. And if you look at those, a lot of times those are the ones he took chances on. And some of them are, you know, I, th- I think a lot of times he's made like the comedy ones uh, more or less to just kind of get a paycheck. Uh, movies like Pink Cadillac, which I think is, you know, god awful. Uh, but then you have movies like Honky Tonk Man, which I don't know if you've ever seen. I have uh, seen Honky Tonk Man, yes. And I, I think I think that's a, a fine movie that's got yeah. no reputation whatsoever. Most people are probably hearing us say the name of the movie and they're saying, "What's that? What you know? What movie is that? I have no idea." It's like uh, Bronco Billy. Mm-hmm. That's another one that has no reputation. But he, well, that that was on the heels of Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can, which are, to be honest with you, not among my absolute favorites. But no, but they, but they were his biggest fun. money makers. Yeah, and both of them are dumb fun movies. They're not my favorites either, but I can watch them and enjoy them and have a laugh with them. Absolutely. I agree with that. Now, do you, do you know what his salary was for this movie? Pittance, probably. $15,000. Was that a lot in 1965? No, <laughs> it was not. The movie was made on a budget, apparently, of $2 million. And I don't think that was a lot either. 
No, probably not. And they probably well, weren't paying I, any of the cast a lot of money. I think this was... Oh, no, excuse me. I, I, I have to... I'm sorry. I really spoke poorly there. The movie was made on a budget of $200,000. Oh, right. That sounds more like it. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I, you know, it's just, I think this is right around the time, maybe a couple of years later than, uh, than they made Cleopatra. And the big controversy was that uh, Elizabeth Taylor's salary was a million dollars. Wow. So then this movie was made for 200000 uh, right. And it was released in 1964 in Europe. It was not released in America until 1967. Right. So it took a long time for it to get here. Uh, and I think that was because the, I guess, whatever product, uh, whatever distribution companies just didn't have confidence that it was going to do well. Uh the box office, as listed on Wikipedia, is fourteen point five million. Wow! I'm, I'm assuming that's a worldwide number. It's still an impressive return, though, isn't it? Oh yeah, like two hundred thousand, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, the, I mean, the thing we haven't discussed primarily is the ending and the music. First off, the ending—you've seen this ending if you've seen Back to the Future Two. Yes. Because it sets up what Marty does in Back to the Future 3. But the way it plays out is really cool. Not only does he invent the first bulletproof vest, but he keeps taunting, um, I forget his name. The, the what's it, what, Does he have a name? Because he's three brothers, isn't it's, there? It's Ramon. Ramon. He keeps taunting Ramon with what he said to him earlier. He teases him about the idea that a shotgun will always win out against a pistol and you've always got to aim for the heart. So he keeps bluffing aim for the aim heart. For the it heart. will never stop me. Yeah, whereas if he just shot him in the head, it'd all be over. Yeah, so even he's, if he shot him in the leg. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Clinton has quite long legs. So, But it's an impressive moment when he just drops that thing down to his, his shoes and everyone just stirs at him and then he just guns down the other three stood at the side of him it's a brilliant ending and then even even then he allows him the dignity of going for an honorable death an honorable shootout it's like all right which of us can reload quickest are you right is it a shotgun or is it me and so the ending of it is brilliant the other thing you've always said that the man with the pistol is a dead man so now prove Mm. it the other thing is the music, Eno Morricone's music. I mean, obviously, the good, the bad, and the ugly is the, the iconic one. But I really like the theme to this. And I love, in the first half of the film, whenever he shows up, whenever Clint Eastwood's on screen, he plays that little musical sting. Yeah, I assume it's a flute that, yeah. that's coming out of... Yeah, that's... Not, and that was the good, the bad, and the ugly that you just did. <laughs> oh yeah it was yeah. yeah this is this is that one isn't it yes yeah I love, and, and, I and he, he's he's yes. got the chorus going in the background and you know when it when it goes full out but then he's just got the little whenever yeah. Clint Eastwood walks whenever in. he shows up on screen that's absolutely brilliant yeah to, to to hit your points there the uh one of my favorite things about that final shootout scene is he doesn't have a bulletproof vest on where Ramon shoots him, the bullet ricochets off, and that's it. Mm. Uh, he hits him, and square every time he hits him, every time he hits him square in the target, it knocks him to the ground. Yeah. The first one that actually knocks him backward is a really good piece of acting if he's not on a rope and being pulled backwards, which is possible. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he pulls it off again when he falls backwards into the barrels. Yes. That's a that's a good fall as well, and 
notably, that's all Eastwood. There's no cutting to stuntman. And and just, but just you know you 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 can feel the force that these bullets are coming with. Mm. And then when you see the plate, you know if if you apply some logic to it, look at the indentations that these bullets are putting into this thick thick steel plate. Oh, he's going to have bruised ribs tomorrow. So yeah, I mean he's he's getting slammed uh, with with these bullets and you know knocked down. I, I guess probably the most most unbelievable aspect of it, if you want to go to that, and and I have no problem totally suspending logic during this scene, but I guess the most unbelievable logic is if if I gave you a rope and I gave you that that piece of metal and had you tie it around your chest, and then I shot you a few times with it. Uh, probably every time I shot you, it would be dislodged and moved out of place. And when you stood up, maybe your heart wouldn't actually be covered. <laughs> and the next shot would take you out. Yeah, it, it's arguable that that rope could keep it in place that long. But but, but that's that's a very a very minor scene. nitpick. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just and then when he he just moment. drops it to the ground and you see Ramon's face. Yeah, and uh, the brilliant that Leone goes to the brilliant close-ups that he's been employing throughout the entire film, and just the the acting on the guys, his eyes widened like, oh shit. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, and then it. and then and then he takes out everybody around him. <laughs> yeah, all, all the all the other all the other uh, Rojos. Uh, just, just, just tremendously put together, uh, and I agree with you totally on the soundtrack. And again, it, 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 he takes it up a step when we get to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now that becomes mm. like the absolutely iconic score, but this, this is very, very solid. It sets a mood, uh, and and when in the you know the main title piece, it, it just keeps building in intensity and intensity with that, you know, with the chorus and the background and everything, uh, that it's it's very, very memorable and very, you know, high quality score to it. Uh, another thing, I, I, a couple of just quick points I wanted to mention was, you would think that there'd be a problem with the fact that Clint Eastwood's the only one who's speaking English when they filmed this movie. Mm. Uh, and and the dubbing is very very clear. Yeah. And it is a little bit. Uh, I I had to have the subtitles on in some places. <laughs> you you had the original uh, Italian uh, soundtrack. No no Netflix. You just watch the subtitles with it. Even dubbed, I had some trouble with understanding what they were saying. Oh okay, that I didn't really have too much of a problem with. But the you know the lack of synchronization between the mouths moving and the, the words you're hearing is is somewhat distracting. Yeah, well, at least at least Clint Eastwood dubbed his own voice here, so it isn't like the uh, the original U.S. cut of Mad Max where Mel Gibson has a different voice for some reason. But I th- I think if my memory serves me right, and I haven't seen this recently, but I think he filmed this giving his lines in English. Yes, he did. So so yeah. his 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 mouth is synchronized to what he's saying, uh, whereas the other people are speaking, I guess, in Italian. Uh, and that you know, it's there's no, you don't have the synchronization, but because and I don't know, maybe in Italy this is distracting the other way because I assume they had to dub him in Italian. Mm. But because his character is so much the focal of this movie, the fact that the other people aren't speaking English is not nearly as bothersome as I think it would have been if it had been more of an ensemble piece. Yeah, it, it's it's. Um... <laughs> It works really well, and I think it's one of those instances where if you didn't know that, you wouldn't really pick up on it, even if you'd think, oh, maybe there's some dubbing going on here. But if you look at a lot of movies from, from that time period, an awful lot of them are loops anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
again, like I said, this was from, uh, or it was kind of stolen from the movie, movie Yojimbo. And there was a lawsuit, uh, which ultimately resulted apparently in a settlement uh, that they paid $100,000 to uh, Kurosawa and his production company. And one of the things I've always said, it's been, I don't know, 20 some odd years, so I should have done it by now. But one of the things I was curious to do was to see the eventual remake of this uh, that Bruce Willis did. Oh, yeah. Last Man Standing, which I've never seen. I've never seen that either. But I've not but, seen his remake of Death Wish either. Oh, no, but I've heard that was awful. Oh, right. I haven't, okay. I, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't really heard anything too much about Last Man Standing, but it's definitely, it takes place, I think, in the 1920s during uh, Prohibition, and he comes into a town, he's the stranger, and he plays two families against each other. Uh, and I, I've, I've been curious to see it, and it was Bruce Willis, I think, before he started mailing in his performances. So, yeah. it, it, you know, it may be worth seeing, but... There's not a lot of buzz about it, and I'm curious to see that. Uh, and, and the reason that that becomes more of a curiosity to me is because this, as I said, is a takeoff of Kurosawa's Yojimbo. The other of the biggest Kurosawa movies, as far as that goes, is uh, The Seven Samurai, which was made into The Magnificent Seven. And there have probably been a dozen remakes of that since then. Yeah. Uh, you know, of note. Uh, I think the, the most... Interesting one of that is A Bug's Life is a remake of it. Yeah, the Magnificent uh, Seven. The pilot yeah. episode of the A-Team is The Magnificent Seven. So, you know, but but because I've seen these versions of A Magnificent Seven, it make, The Magnificent Seven, excuse me, it makes me more curious to see a remake of this. Mm. And Bruce Willis, again, you know, at that point in his career was an actor who I enjoyed seeing. So how I've gotten this long without seeing that is a surprise to me. No, I've never seen that either so any other uh any other points you have on this uh not only that it is um a supremely enjoyable movie that holds up after all this time it's really still entertaining it's one of those films i think that's reputation precedes it it isn't exactly what you think it's going to be i think it's a lot more complicated than you think it's going to be in terms of its writing and its plotting and its characterization. It's a lot more complex than its reputation would perhaps allow you to believe. Uh, I totally agree. I think it is, it is a deceptively complicated movie Mm. in a good way. Yeah. The, the whole idea of him playing both sides against the middle and his, for his ultimate goal is really well done. And there is a line in the movie that pretty much sums up the entire film where he says um, something like, uh, Ramon says something like, he's not just a gunslinger, he's intelligent. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very true. Uh, so all of that is true. But ultimately, Andy, the big question, is it yours? No, because it's not the best of the Dollars trilogy. So it can't be Jaws, but it is. Well, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment. I'm going to interrupt you because I've, I've been having this discussion lately. Uh, not being the best doesn't necessarily preclude it from being Jaws. And I'll give you the, the logic is uh, if, we get, if we took Clint Eastwood's uh, entire filmography, he's probably got, I don't know, 100 movies on his filmography. Just he's got quite sake. a lot, yeah. Yes. So there's four categories of Is It Jaws? So each category is probably going to have more than one entry within it. 
so just because another movie, and I believe we rated Dirty Harry as Jaws, uh, just because another movie is rated as Jaws doesn't mean this one can't be as well, even if you like that other one more than this. So I just I just want to you know step on that logic a little bit, but that doesn't necessarily make it Jaws anyway. But I'm just saying it doesn't preclude it from being Jaws. Now that said, go on. Continue to give your answer. I don't think it's Jaws. Okay. Where does it fall on the scale? A very, 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 very high Jaws 2. Okay. I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> I, I was playing devil's advocate and giving you the opportunity to rate it as Jaws if you chose. Uh, I don't think it's the all-time absolute classic that it needs to be to get into the Jaws ranking. Mm. But I do think it is as you said, uh, a, a terrific movie, well-directed, well-acted. I do have some issues with the editing. The story is complex and compelling and really not that difficult to understand when you watch it in its original format and you don't see it cut up for TV. <laughs> uh, it's it's just, you know, really just well done and, and very engrossing. The cinematography is absolutely beautiful. The directing is is terrific. Again, some issues with the editing, but that's... A lesser point uh also i think in, in many ways it's very innovative again the the man with no name character and his 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 moral ambiguity uh the the directing style with the extreme close-ups uh the the film score which is very different than anything i think we had ever heard in america to this point uh, just so much, so much about it that just is groundbreaking, uh, but just kind of falls just shy of that Jaws rating. So I would say a very high Jaws to myself as well. So that's it uh, for this episode of Is It Yours? Uh, at some point, Andy will be back and we'll talk about some other movie, whether it's another Clint Eastwood movie or something else. I don't know. But thanks for coming on, Andy. No worries. Thank you for having me. And everybody else, thank you for listening in, and we'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Get three coffins ready. like to see bad boys like you in town. Go get your mule. <laughs> you let him get away from you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, that's what I want to talk to you about. He's feeling real bad. Huh? My mule. You see, he got all riled up when you went fired those shots at his feet. <laughs> hey, you making some kind of joke? Mm, no. You see, I understand you men were just playing around, but the mule, he just doesn't get it. Of course, if you were to all apologize. <laughs> I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if 
you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. saw the whole thing. You killed all four of them. You'll pay all right. You'll be strung up. Who are you? Don't fire a shot. I'm John Baxter. Sheriff. Yeah. Well, if you're the sheriff, you better get these men underground. Mistake, work often. <laughs> <laughs> 